Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. What's going to be needed in the days to come, and you're going to see this even in the text today, and I think, wow, every time I'm, I'm in this text, I see it connecting with current events. You and I are going to be tempted to compromise with these mandates and whatnot, vaccinations and meeting together and groups and stuff. And I think what you're going to start seeing is the lines are going to be very evident in your life who is not compromising and who is. Who's standing for truth and who's giving way. And I guarantee you that every believer who gives way to this Watch, they will spiritualize their decision by saying, well, I'm just following the government like we're supposed to. You watch it. They will baptize it and spiritualize that. And so um, the dividing lines are happening. So keep watch in your own personal life because eventually it's going to come to our front door. And um, we'll have to be willing to stand for whatever happens to us at that point in time. Some people have lost their jobs. You know, some people, have, have, have their family members won't have anything to do with them because they think they're crazy. It's really a time of division. And I think in this regard, it is good because God is wanting us to see who's in the trenches with us and who's not. Who can we rely on and who, who should we distance ourselves from? And I think that's going to be important. So it lends itself into the text we're, we're going into. And we're looking at the plagues of Egypt. Now, most people gloss over the plagues, and they say, okay, frogs, gnats, flies, and they just go through it. But they don't take the time to unpack each one and understand there's a moral significance to every one. There's a, 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 uh, a message in the plagues that God is trying to get out, not only to the Egyptians, but to us. And, and this is, you know, I have entitled today uh, the message, Disregarding Warnings, brings unannounced consequences. Now, God, out of his mercy, which you'll see in the text, is he's going to go through a cycle of judgments and warn, warn, and then the third plague that will come, he gives no warning. So you'll see similar things happen in our culture today, that God has been trying to warn our culture, our society, hey, this is not right, get this fixed, get this fixed, repent, repent, repent. And if the society continues to ignore the warnings, then something comes unannounced. And that's what you'll see the pattern here in Scripture is that Moses will warn, hey, a consequence has come. And then all of a sudden, boom, it'll hit them without an announcement. They'll all be taken by surprise. And there's a pattern behind that that I want to show you because I believe the pattern is still happening. God is using these same patterns today to wake the world up before the tribulation. Like I've said before, when you look at the plagues, they are a typology of the great tribulation. So you're seeing a mini tribulation in Egypt pointing to the future tribulation that will happen worldwide. And so there's an eschatological element, a last, last day's element involved in the plagues, and we want to pull, pull those things out. I found an interesting story this week, before we begin, about listening to warnings. And there was a, a ship off the coast of Great Britain. And as you know, in those areas, it gets real foggy and many, many times in England and Scotland and all those places. Well, 
this ship was out there and the fog had descended and they kind of lost their bearings. And so uh, they were just going along and then all of a sudden they saw another light in the distance. And it was a faint light, but they could see it and it was coming directly for them. And so they signaled to this other light, you need to turn 20 degrees, otherwise we're on a head-on collision. So will you turn 20 degrees? And so the light responded, and I think this is, they were responding back in Morse code. And they said, no, you need to turn 20 degrees. So the captain was a little irritated about that. And so, again, they fired back in Morse code, no, you don't understand. We're on a head-on collision, and you need to turn 20 degrees. Well, the light responded back. I don't think you understand. You need to move 20 degrees. So they did this back and forth thing for quite a while. Afterwards, at the end of it, the captain just threw down the gauntlet and he said, look, we are a battleship. You need to move now. Well, finally, that light responded back and said, I don't care if you're a battleship, I'm a lighthouse. You need to move 20 degrees, otherwise you're going to hit the rocks. And you see that story, and you think, that's how our culture is. God is giving warnings. He's the lighthouse, and they're acting like, no, no, you need to move on our terms. We're not obeying. We're not going to listen to your warning signals. And I think that's what God is doing. He's warning the society about where it's heading. But how about for us? One of the things I want you to keep in mind, and you'll see it in the text, what is God trying to warn the church about, his believers about? And I think what you're going to see here is the same thing that Moses dealt with, is he's going to warn us that, yes, I'm warning society, but I'm warning you guys not to compromise during this period of time. Don't cave in. Don't give up. And we'll see that unpack with Moses. So there's a twofold warning here to believers and unbelievers. Okay, so let's start into the text. We're going to be in chapter 8 of Exodus, verse 16 through 32. And it starts off by saying this. So the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice through all the land of Egypt. Now, notice that this plague is number three and it has no warning. So the first two plagues, the blood and the frogs have warnings, but this one doesn't. And so this is the pattern you'll see in the plagues. What the pattern is, is you'll have two plagues and then no warning, and then two more plagues, then no warning, two more plagues, and then no warning. And that's the pattern that'll happen. The last plague, obviously 10, will have a warning, and then if they don't obey it, then eventually the Red Sea comes and there's no warning there in the Red Sea. So it'll work in that kind of pattern. Let me unpack this just a little bit. Plague three is a plague of lice. That's probably the best translation of the word. And in the Hebrew word, it's kanim. What kanim means is a certain lice that would get on them and stay on their bodies and whatnot. And I'll explain the implications theologically for that. Let's continue on verse 17 and it says this, And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth, and it became lice on man and beast. And so obviously Aaron does this, and lice comes up. Just like you would see people when you go. Remember in school they used to check us for lice? You'd stand in line and 
the school nurse would check your head for lice and stuff like that. Well, that's what this really is. And you say, what's the big deal about lice? Okay, the first three plagues are not life-threatening, but they are going to make life difficult for them, for the Egyptians. And I think right now we're seeing a similar thing in our culture some of the things we're going through are not life-threatening per se, but it is an alteration of our lives. We're changing things. We have to go into restaurants wearing a stupid mask. And we have to, they tell us to keep six feet apart. And they told us we can't go to church and we can't sing songs and we can't even have a Bible study in our house. That's what we're talking about. It's a, it's a making life difficult for you. And this lice is going to make it extremely difficult in one respect, and I'll connect in just a bit. But when you see lice, and like when people have it in their hair, it's very disgusting. But imagine these creatures all over your body, infesting on your body, all over your animals, everywhere, and you can't get away from them. Again, it's not life-threatening, but it's an irritation. Now, I want you to notice that the lice was created out of the dust of the ground. Now, that's interesting. That's a theological point that God's trying to make. Out of the ground comes lice. Do you remember how God created life? Out of the dust. Mary created Adam and Eve out of the dust of the ground, right? So God does a similar thing like he did in creation and creates life out of nothing, out of the dust, okay? But also... As you know in Genesis, what happened to the dust? What happened to the ground after Adam and Eve had sinned? What did he say about the ground? Cursed is the ground because of you. So it harkens back to the creator creating out of the dust, but it also is a reminder to the Egyptians and the Hebrews, I'm creating something out of the cursed ground to be a curse for you. To be a punishment for you. So it harkens back to the God of creation and the cursing that came with that. And then it says this, And all the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. So it wasn't just certain pockets of Egypt. All the Egyptians had this. All the areas of, of all the borders. So it's interesting that this is very specific. That it's not you know, crossing borders into other countries. It's only for the Egyptians. It's a country issue. Okay, so now let's get into the theological issues of what it's trying to say. Well, first of all, this is an attack on the Egyptian god called Geb or Seb. And he's the earth god of dust and soil, okay? Again, it's a counterfeit of what God did. God created out of the soil, but now they're saying this particular Egyptian God did it. So it's kind of a, a counterfeit replacement of God in Egyptian religion. Okay, again, like I've said before, this is not just a figment of the Egyptians' imagination. This is a fallen angel or a demon counterfeiting what God did. So they're worshiping demons. They're worshiping fallen angels. And that's... The, the spiritual battle that's going on, God is directly attacking this fallen angel, this demon. And, and as you can see in these other pictures, Geb would lay on the ground in Egyptian hieroglyphs as he represented the earth on the ground. So he represented the, the earth god, so to speak. 
I'm going to tell you what, right now, when you study Geb and how the Egyptians worshipped him, you get a funny feeling that nothing's really changed in our world. This idea of creation care, this idea of saving the planet, saving Mother Earth, is the, almost the same concept that the Egyptians have. And I want to think, here we are in the 21st century, and this is going back 3,500 years ago, and we're still doing the same thing. People are still worshiping the earth, the ground, as if it's a, a god or whatnot. Nothing's really changed. And anyway, this Geb is who they worshiped, and they worshiped him for the, the creation of the earth. Because in the Egyptian culture, the earth was very important. As the Nile would flood, it would fertilize the land, and that land became very fertile in growing their crops. So we're dependent on the Nile, and they're dependent on the soil. And so they started worshiping it, basically, with this God. And I find it funny that I was reading a story about these churches that have went off the rocker, these churches that have went off the mark, and they're getting into apostasy. One church was promoting creation care, promoting Mother Earth, that we need to save the planet. And I read about this church having an altar call, and in front of the altar, they had barrels of dirt now check this out. If this doesn't spin your head, I don't know what does. The pastor, the, or I should say impastor, imposter, called the congregation forward to grab the earth, the dirt, in the, the barrels, in the invitation, and make a vow to save the planet because he misquoted John 3.16. Now get this. This is how he quoted it. You know the passage, God so loved the world, Right? You know what the, wor- the, the word world means. It means people. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? They interpreted it, world, as the planet. That God so loved the planet, he gave his only son for the planet. And I thought, how apostate can you get? How heretical can you get? World means people, not the earth. Well, anyway, that's what his message was. And so they had all the congregation come up and grab handfuls of dirt and make a vow because God wanted to save the planet, and so should we. That, my friends, is not the God of the Bible. That's Geb. That's the Egyptian God of the earth. That's a false God. And I thought, we haven't changed. But anyway, okay, what does this do? Lice. So there's an Egyptian God attached to the earth, okay? And so the earth is becoming a curse in the form of lice. What is the big deal about this? Ah, Here's where I want you to connect the past to the present right now. It doesn't allow the priests to perform the ritual duties to the religion of Egypt. Because, have you ever seen these movies about the Egyptians? They're always smooth-skinned. There's no hair on their bodies, and their, their heads are shaved and whatnot. You know why they did that? The priests shave their bodies periodically, very frequently, I think every other day, to have no hair on them because they didn't want lice or any other bugs attached to them. And so they were all clean-shaven so that they could serve that particular god and all the, make all the sacrifices and rituals to these gods. And so in effect, what God did is put the lice on not only the Egyptians, but primarily the priesthood of the Egyptians so that they couldn't worship their gods because they were infested and it made them ritually unclean. 
Now, with the priests, obviously, it was all outwardly. There was nothing inwardly, but that's, they bathed frequently and whatnot. But this polluted them and prevented them from worshiping. Now, let's bring that into today. In an ironic twist in America and around the world, for many decades, God has been warning the church, do not forsake the gathering of yourselves, as some are in the habit of doing so. And we have watched, decade after decade, a very steady decline in church attendance to the point where it's gotten really bad. Before all this hit, church attendance was plummeting. The stats were showing that people barely came about 12 times a year, if that. So basically once a month they would come to church. In an ironic twist, I find this funny, that with this whole shutdown of the coronavirus, that the churches were shut down. Now, you know, that came from the governor or whatnot, but nonetheless, I, I want you to see the overall picture. In effect, those who came to church maybe once a month or whatever were now forced to say, well, if you don't want to come that often, then I'll make it a point that you won't come at all. If you neglect me, I will just shut the whole thing down on you. Do you know there's Christians that have been to church since March? And they're actually quite fine with it sometimes. They like doing the pajama day on Sunday and watching online something. And I get it, maybe some people don't have a church to go to, but actually some people are actually liking it. The stats are showing that, that the churches are afraid that people are not coming back, period, because they like this online stuff so much. Now, again, that separates people out who, who watch online that need to be online. I get that. But isn't that funny? He shuts down in Egypt their ability to worship. And now I'm looking at a situation here in modern-day times where the church was virtually shut down across the board from worshiping. It's almost like God gave the church, you don't want to come to church, you have other priorities, you do other things on Sunday, I get it, you don't really, are not into this. I'll make it so where you don't go at all. And the overarching thing among the remnant church, and I'm, I'm speaking to the choir here, what has been our attitude? We wanted to get back in church. We don't want to miss church. We think it's important to be with the body of Christ. And we, want, and, and we were clamoring to try to get back. There's, not a, there's, there's still a lot of people that don't want to come back. There's a lot of churches that don't want to come back. Some of these churches have said, we're not going to meet until January. What? Are you out of your mind? Are you guys decide to take a vacation? What was what, going on here? So I find it funny that in this plague, he takes away their ability to worship, and now today he's taking our ability to worship. Now, here's the deal. You're here, I'm here, and a lot of other churches, a minority of churches are actually meeting. Okay, not, this, this is not the norm. So God has provided the way for the remnant to come back together and still meet. Okay? But isn't it funny that God has shown what the other side would like. He's given them over to what they want. You don't want to worship me? Fine. You don't come at all. Don't come at all. And I thought, wow, I'm seeing a parallel here. I'm drawing a parallel. And I think this is important for us to understand. God is showing us who really has a heart for him, who really is trying to do the right thing. 
versus those who are kind of playing games, not really into it. And I think things like this, as they continue to ramp up, you're going to watch this separation happen in Christendom between the false church and the real church, between Laodicean believers versus remnant believers. We're seeing this. It's sad to see this because, like Marcy said in the singing today, she's getting flack from other Christians. Why? For what? Worshiping God? What, what is it? To believe the scriptures? What, we're, why are we getting flack from other believers? They're Laodicean, that's why. They'd rather lay down and, and die and let the governor or whoever push them over and do that than fight. They refuse to fight. So God has given Christendom what it wants. Sad, isn't it? Verse 18. Now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So now they've reached a point where the powers that they did have from the demonic and fallen angel world can only go so far. Now here's the deal. So they're not able to do this, but why, why is God... Why did he do certain miracles at the beginning, like the snake, the, the staff turning into snake, the water, and then the frogs? And then allow the magicians to show their powers as well. Because what, what God is doing is illustrating a principle to all of us even today. And what he's wanting to say is this. Fallen angels and demons have a certain amount of power and can do lying signs and wonders. Up to a point. Up to a point. But once you get certain past, past that point that they're limited in, you get to the point where you get to God's power, which is unlimited. That God can do anything. So they have limited power, but God has unlimited power. But make no mistake, he wants us to know, just because you see something supernatural doesn't mean it's from me. It could be from a demon. It could be from a fallen angel. But now God is showing now his unlimited power. And they do not have the ability to create life out of the cursed dirt, dirt like God can. So they've reached their limits. And this is the discernment that you and I need to have. Here's the deal. We're seeing more and more supernatural occurrences happen. More and more people that I talk to are having supernatural things happen to them. And whether that's an encounter whether that's voices in their head, whether that's paranormal activities that are happening to them, don't think that just because it's paranormal means it's from God. You need and I need to test the spirits to see whether they're from God. That's the idea of dealing with the supernatural. And I'm going to tell you what, it's not going away. The demonic activity is actually ramping up now. You've got to be able to test the supernatural. So anyway, it goes on. It says, so there were lice on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And I want to camp out a little bit on, on what that means. They admit, they confess, they don't have this kind of power. And they say, this is coming from the power of Yahweh. Now, in the Hebrew mindset, the way Moses wrote this about the finger of God, this is an important concept I want us to understand. The finger of God it's an anthropomorphism, you know, because God doesn't have fingers. He's invisible. I mean, Messiah obviously has a body, but, but God is invisible, right? But the idea of referring to his finger is, a, is an anthropomorphism that relates to his power. 
that within his finger is where his power comes out of, but it, the finger represents the whole, is the idea. The part represents the whole, is what Moses is trying to accomplish. And you'll see the, the theme of the finger of God all through Scripture, even into the New Testament. The finger of God represents two things. Number one, it represents his all, he's that he's all-powerful and his power is unlimited. Okay? The second thing it represents is that God has what's called revelatory power. Revelatory power. Which means that this is God's revelation to man. Right here. That he has the power to communicate with us and put it down in word and preserve his word. They're never going to be able to get rid of his word. They can burn it all they want in Portland. They will never get rid of his word because he has the power to sustain it. I mean, think about this. This book has lasted, from the Old Testament to now, 3,500 years. And no one's been able to deconstruct it. No one's been able to destroy it, even though they've tried. And it still is with us today. And nothing will, will break that because what sustains this is the unlimited power of God. Okay, so you get that. So what does it mean to them? What does it mean to us as far as an application? Well, the finger of God is, is, is they're admitting they don't have the power to outdo this. They're recognizing it. I'm not saying they come into faith in God, but they recognize that this is coming from God. And just understand this. So you'll see this in the tribulation, in the book of Revelation. Humans can acknowledge that this is coming from God, but it sometimes doesn't lend itself to belief. In the book of Revelation, they will see, even in the seal judgments, that this is the power of the Messiah. They will see the heavens split open and see Messiah on his throne, and they still won't believe. So even though they see the, this is coming from Yahweh, this power is unlimited, they still won't believe. Now, let me go a little bit deeper on the finger of God. It is how God communicates as well. Remember, what wrote the Ten Commandments? It's the finger of God, right? Do you remember another scene in the New Testament about the woman caught in adultery? You remember that scene? And they brought her before Jesus and said, Rabbi, she's been caught in adultery. What do you say? And what did Jesus do? Do you remember? He sat there with his finger writing in what? The dust. See, most people think that the focus of the story is the woman caught in adultery. That's not the focus of the story. The focus of the story is his finger. It's his finger. And he's writing with his finger, revelatory, in what? Dirt or dust. You know what the message is about that? When, in that scene, at the, that he's the one who wrote the law. The very law they're trying to condemn her with is he's the one who wrote it. And he's showing his finger. And so it's the revelatory power that Messiah had because he is God. And he's writing it in the dust. What does the dust represent? It's cursed, right? The dirt is cursed. And then, therefore, he says, he who has, is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Because the law that he wrote condemns sinful man, right? It condemns sinful man. So the message... All that they needed to see was him writing in the dust, and they got the message. 
And then obviously the, 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 the sin that he was referring to, he is without sin, let him cast the first stone. He wasn't referring to sin in general, he was referring to adultery. And then they all left at that point. So guess what his message was? You want to accuse her of adultery, right? Number, but number one, you don't have any witnesses because I'm the one who wrote the law and I know how you don't have any witnesses. So case dismissed. But who among you hasn't committed adultery? And it nailed all of them. All of them had committed adultery. So they, they dropped their stones and left. But th- all that scene represents is Messiah has the finger of power. What he writes stays. And he has that power. And that's what they're seeing, is they're seeing God's power here. Anyway, as you, as you continue on in this, let's jump to uh, the next verse. And it says this. How did Pharaoh respond to this? But Pharaoh's heart grew hard. After he was told by his, his lector priests that we don't have this power, this is, a, this is an unlimited power, his heart grew hard. And he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. So again, just because someone sees power coming from God doesn't lend itself to belief. You would think so, right? But that's how, that's how corrupted people's hearts are. I find it amazing that the parallels with our society now, as people's hearts are growing harder and harder, we're seeing fewer and fewer people respond to the gospel. Yes, some people are responding, but we're not seeing that anymore like we used to see in America. Most people are turned off. They don't want to have anything to do with Jesus or God. And, and it, it's just kind of sad to watch our country where it used to be, go to this area of a lack of spirituality. You know, I was, I was at the coast uh, during uh, my vacation at Central Coast, and we were going through San Luis. And um, I remember reading an article about San Luis. This will blow your mind. San Luis is part of the top 10 cities in the nation where when they poll the people who live in San Luis, they all report as uh, non-spiritual or, you know, nothing or whatever. And I thought, we're here in this city in San Luis, and that is a top 10 city where people reporting nothing. We are nothing religiously. I didn't realize it was that ungodly. They don't want anything to do. I understand it's a college town and whatnot, but I didn't realize how bad that was. And that's right here in California. And there's a lot of other California cities that are part of that list. But that's how the world is becoming. Their heart is hard. Sad, isn't it? Verse 20. And the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. Then say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Now notice this. This is the fourth plague. And I want you to notice something different. It comes with a warning. So that the first cycle is over, now we're starting the second cycle. Plagues four, five, and six. So the first two will come with a warning, and then the last one won't. Okay, but notice where he's at. In the morning, and out by the water where Pharaoh comes to bathe. Okay, that's significant. Because that goes back to the first plague. And what you'll see the pattern in the first, and then the fourth, and seventh, I believe it is, yes, that... Moses will go out in the morning at the same place, same time, to confront Pharaoh when he's starting a new cycle of of, uh, plagues. 
Why? Why? Why is it that he keeps going back to this one area? And it's because of this. This is where Pharaoh got off track. This is where he made his edict about throwing the babies into the Nile. This is where the deed would be done to actually hurt the Israelites by throwing their baby boys into the Nile. So God keeps bringing Pharaoh back to this place in the morning on the riverbank of the Nile to bring him back to saying, look, it's the same issue. It's the same thing I want you to deal with. And so it's an act of grace, but it's always bringing him back where he got off track. And the same is true with us or the culture. He will bring the culture back repeatedly to its foundation of where they got off. Now you think about this as far as America is concerned. God keeps showing warnings to America of where we're getting off track. And you know where he does? He keeps bringing America back to its foundations. That Judeo-Christian ethic that, that America was built on, our Constitution was built on, he keeps bringing us back to that. Because he's going to tell us, basically through a series of warnings, as he's already said, if you keep this up, you're going to lose your foundations and you won't have anything to stand on anymore. America was founded on the Bible. On, it's, again, you can't get away from that. Our whole legal system is based on Judeo-Christian ethics. Our founders said, if the people of America become immoral, it will crumble. Because you can't have a society like ours without morality. And so the very foundations are cracking in our country. And so God keeps bringing us back. You're going to lose it. You're going to lose it. If you let go of the foundations, you're going to lose it. And to us personally, on a personal level, as we deal with the Lord in our walk with him, what you'll notice is that God will always bring us back to issues we haven't resolved. He will always bring it back. You can run from them. You can go move. But your issues will follow you wherever you go. And he's always going to keep pointing us back to Have you dealt with this? Have you dealt with this? I want you to get free from this. I want you to deal with this. This is unresolved. And he'll always do that. It's an act of grace, but in effect, he'll always take you back to the bank of the river in the morning and say, are you going to deal with this? Verse 21, he goes, or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. So this will be a massive infestation of flies. So not only did they have lice, but now they're going to have flies. Some commentators believe that the type of fly that they were referring to is the ichneumon fly. Now this is interesting because this would also disrupt the religious aspects of Egyptian religion and the priests. The ichneumon fly basically is a parasitic wasp. And what it does is it actually starts, it finds a host, because it's a parasitic wasp, it finds a host, whether it's a human being or an animal, and then will lay its larvae on that human host, and that's the, the human organism or the animal organism is what it uses for the nutrients for the larvae. It's very disgusting, by the way, when you, when you think about that, that a fly is going to lay its eggs in you. It's like one of those shows I saw where, I don't know, it was kind of a, a, 
gross-out show where uh, they, these people have these weird medical things that happen to them. And this one old boy, so, some fly or something went into his ear and laid eggs in his ear. Thought he couldn't hear, and then they got in there. And there was all the fly larvae maggots in his ear. It was disgusting. But can you imagine? That's the kind of disgusting thing that was happening to the Egyptians. If this was the Ichneumon fly, which is in that area, then it was infesting them and laying eggs all over their bodies and their animals. This, as you can see, would disrupt life. It wouldn't kill them. It'd make life harder, but it also prevented them from worshiping their Egyptian gods. It affected uh, the religion in that aspect. Well, anyway, the funny thing about this, flies, or even the Ichneumon fly, was a symbol of good luck for the Egyptians. They had stone amulets that they have dug up from 3,500 years ago that have flies on the amulets. And so they revered the fly. It's been seen on magic wands in Egypt, ritual artifacts in Egypt. The fly is on there. Okay. But what God the fly represented was, and if I can pronounce this right, Wadjet or Udichit. Okay, Wadjet or Udichit was the cobra goddess. And you can see these pictures in, in uh, archaeology. You can see that this is, is a cobra with uh, its, um, I don't know what you call it, cape or whatever, uh, flared up, ready to strike. It's always in a striking pose. This Udichit or Udichit became a symbol and was actually put on the pharaoh's headdress. If you remember, most of the headdresses have a cobra on top of them. And it's representative of Udichit or Wajet. Now, Udichit or Wajet protected the pharaoh. And what he would, this goddess would do, or she, I should say, would flare her cape as a cobra and spit poisonous venom on pharaoh's enemies. Well, in this case... God is making Wadajet or Udajet impotent. So you can't protect the Pharaoh. I'm sending flies. And by the way, Wadajet or Udajet was the Lord of the flies. In the New Testament, the term is Beelzebub. Remember that? They said Jesus does works by the power of Beelzebub, Lord of the flies. That was, that's what Beelzebub means. Well, Beelzebub, in, in, in many sense, was in Egypt as well. They worshipped the, the Lord of the Flies. And this Lord of the Flies, so he can't protect Pharaoh, and he can't stop the flies. So God is showing that this fallen angel, Beelzebub, cannot have the power to stop Yahweh. And again, renders Pharaoh open season because he cannot protect Pharaoh. Anyway, verse 22. And in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people. And I want you to pay particular attention to that verse. That is important for us to understand right now. You'll see this passage and then other passages where God will say, I'm making a separation between my people and your people. And the implication is that all the plagues, God did this. He separated out the Israelites from the Egyptians in all the plagues. That's the implication, that this is a pattern all through all ten. Okay, 
This is a principle found not only here, but in the New Testament. I don't have it on the screen, but I want you to listen to this. It's 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Just listen to what God says, and this is the principle. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly from trials and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So that's a principle that applies into the New Testament and right now for you and I. As God sent the plagues to Egypt, he actually protected the Israelites from getting any of the plagues. It did not come upon them. Now, let's bridge it over to today. Based on 2 Peter and it being used in the New Testament, it is a promise to you and I. And thank God for it. I got so many people contacting me worried about how the world is becoming. And I agree, it's getting bad. And things are coming our way that's going to really rock the society. No doubt about it. But here's my thing. I go back to this verse and this principle, and that principle should make you feel secure in Yahweh, secure in Jesus, because he says, I can separate you out from what's happening in the culture, what I'm doing in the culture, If I punish the culture, I can preserve you out of it. That's what we need to hear. That no matter how bad our culture is getting, how society is getting, somehow, some way, Jesus will make a way through it for us. He will protect us. He will separate us out. And I'm going to tell you what. You taking a stand by even coming here today, knowing that you're practicing civil disobedience right now, you actually will get more protection by God for you stepping out and making a concerted effort by faith and trusting God rather than man. He will protect you. He will see you through it. The economy is going to get hit. They may do another shutdown. They might might say, we're having another pandemic. But rest assured, no matter what comes our way, this principle that God separates his believers out is at work now. Someone was telling me today, uh, I think you guys were telling me, isn't it funny that since this started back in February, March, that no one in Rock Harbor has gotten COVID-19? No one. Now, I'm not saying it, it might not happen later on, but look at all what we went through. Some of you were exposed to other people who had coronavirus. Some of you were around them, and yet you didn't get it. I, again, I'm not saying that, you know, hey, come to church and you, go, you, you get healthy. I'm not doing health and wealth stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is, isn't it funny how God, it seems, is preserving his remnant? Many of people have talked to me, they've lost jobs. But you know what happened? Another job turned up for them. They went from one thing to the next. They were scared, and I get it. It's scary to lose your job, but then somehow God opened another door for them. What is that? That's God's principle here. I know how to take care of my children. I'm not going to abandon my children. I know what I'm putting on this society, and I know you believers are not responsible for it. You and I didn't cause abortion to happen in this country. You and I didn't allow same-sex marriage. We're not responsible for that. We were against it, but the tide of the culture went that way. So God says, fine. I will hit the culture with what I need to hit them with, but I will separate you out from it. Thank God for that. Amen.
But he makes that distinction, and that I don't want you leaving today without knowing that. That's an important principle. Anyway, he says, Tomorrow this shall be. And the Lord did so. Thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh, into his servant's house. I mean, it just packed every living area with these, these parasitic flies that would lay larvae or lay their eggs on people. And into the land of Egypt. And notice this. The land was corrupted because of the swarm of flies. Ah. So we went to the first set of plagues, which affected daily life, made life harder. Now we're into the second stage of plagues. And guess what they're affecting? The personal property of the people. So now it's affecting their land. Their land to them is everything. They grow their crops. Their houses are on them. This is their property. Now God's hitting their their property. Watch the stage of movement. I'll make society's life harder, and then I'm going to move and start affecting their property. In In our day, it's not so much that you and I own land. It's our money. So what should we expect? We already have hints of it. We're looking towards an economic disaster coming. They're thinking about switching to a digital currency, putting a new value system. This is not like I'm making it up. You can just go on the internet and read it. They're saying this. What does that mean? Well, it means that something's radically going to change in the economy. We could have another bust. If they shut down our economy again, forget it. We ain't coming back from that. Okay, so God might do that to America and the world to get their attention, just like he did with the Egyptians. But what does that mean for you and I? You and I will be preserved. Somehow, some way, we'll make it. Somehow, some way, we'll make it economically. We don't put our trust in our bank account or our retirement. We put our trust in Jesus. Can Jesus give us what he, we need? Of course he can. He's the God of the universe. But again, notice the parallels. Verse 25. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God in the land. Wow, it seems like Pharaoh has relented. But notice what he says. Sacrifice to your God where? What land? Egypt. He won't let him go. He makes a concession, says, you guys can go worship Yahweh, but make sure you do it in Egypt. That's setting up a compromise that he wants Moses to make. It's a partial capitulation. Look, Moses, I'm giving you a little. You give me a little. Is that how God wants us to, to work? Gavin Newsom gives us a little. And we give a little? Oh, no. I don't care what they try to give us. What carrot they put out in front of you and I. That carrot will be for you and I to compromise. Don't do it. Moses won't do it. He will not compromise. But I'm going to tell you what. This idea of compromise is coming. And a lot of Christians are already doing it. They're compromising. They just try to get along. Think about this. What what, what could possibly happen? Compromise your Christianity. Keep it private. Keep it private. And don't go out and proselytize people because that's offensive to people. Don't try to witness to them. Just shut your mouth. But you can keep your religion private. See, that's a compromise. Because your religion, Christianity, can't be private. It has to be public. Because your job is to go publicly and tell people what to do. Uh, sorry, sorry, who to accept and, and how, what the Lord wants. It can't remain private. That's what they're wanting us to do. Or this. 
Don't offend people with your hate speech. Just keep your mouth shut. You can say whatever you want in your church, but you know, don't put it on the internet. Don't go tell people your coworkers or that. That's hate speech. You see what they're doing? Conform to the government. You know, if we reopen you churches, just make sure you're six feet apart. We, we test your temperature. You put goggles on now. Fauci's wanting goggles now, people. Uh, put goggles on, and we can, we can allow you to go to church. Oh, but you can't sing. But you can come back to church. You see what they're doing? That's all a compromise to see if you will compromise. And you have to say, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not putting on goggles. I'm not being tested. I am not going to stop singing to my Lord. How dare you ask me to stop singing? And so all that's to say is they're going to force us to compromise. Well, Moses doesn't budge. Let's continue on verse 26. And Moses said, it is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. We would be an abomination. The Egyptians don't like our religion. We would be an abomination to them. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then they will not stone us. The idea is that part of the sacrificial system of the Israelites at this time, they would sacrifice bulls. And so that was a god to the Egyptians, and so that would be an abomination. Verse 27, we will go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he will command us. Now, that's important. There's no compromise there. What in the Hebrew understanding that we will go three days journey, it means politely, we're not coming back. I'm not compromising with you. We will go out of the land. You want us to stay in the land? We're not doing that. We're going out of the land. And the three days journey means I'm never coming back. So the offer is not happening, Pharaoh. I'm not compromising. There is our application right there. You and I have to be like Moses. I will not give in to this. I will not sacrifice my integrity so I can just get along with the governor. Not happening. Verse 28. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Now, here's the other compromise. Only you shall not go very far away. <laughs> what are you crazy? It's a more compromise. Come on, Moses, I'll let you go out of the land, okay, but don't go very far away so I can get you back. I want your, your, your slave, your enslavement, because it makes me money. And then he says, intercede for me. So he's pretending to be some, some guy that wants Moses to intercede for them. He's playing a game. This is what politicians do, right? Oh, I'll give you what you want. Pray for me. Pray for me, says Nancy Pelosi, or any of these other people. Pray. They haven't prayed since they're probably five years old. These people are ungodly. Anyway, verse 29. Then Moses said, indeed, I am going out from you. Uh, I'm, I'm gone. I'm gone, dude. And I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. But let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully anymore and not letting the people go to sacrifice the Lord. So he's saying, hey, look, dude, you better not lie to me. Because if you lie to me, something worse is going to come. If you're playing a game with me, Pharaoh... It's going to get rough. And you know, it, he, he is playing a game, and it is going to get rougher. Verse 30. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. He removed the swarm of flies from Pharaoh and his servants and from his people. Not one remained. It's all gone. But look how Pharaoh responded. But Pharaoh hardened his heart at, the time, at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. And that's how he keeps responding. Point of application. The temptation to compromise, as I've mentioned, is our application. That's what's coming in front of you and I. 
I don't know what this is going to mean for you and I. I don't know what it means for a forced vaccination, if that comes. I don't know what it means if they really put the clamps on the churches and make it illegal at that point in time. We will still meet. I'm not compromising, but understand, if you don't compromise, you're going to pay a price. You know, we could get arrested. We could be fined, and I'm fine with that. That's fine. If they want to do that, that's fine. So be it. Not compromise. Not giving in to this. But let me get a personal application before we leave about this, this compromising thing. How can we prepare ourselves to not compromise? They did a study on Korean POWs from the Korean War. It's fascinating. And they were perplexed by a lot of POWs in Korea, American POWs in Korea, who actually compromised and gave up information and, and um, were completely brainwashed by their captors. They started getting Stockholm Syndrome and all kinds of weird stuff, all in love with their captor type of thing. And this fascinated scientists and psychologists because they were concerned that, wait a second, these are our military guys, and a lot of them in that Korean War compromised. But there was a handful that didn't. So they start studying them. And what they found is very interesting. The guys who caved in to be, to be in the POW were the guys who didn't know any history of American history and didn't have any biblical value system to stand on. Isn't that interesting? They didn't know history, and they had no biblical values to stand on. Versus the guys who stayed, were tortured, made it through. These guys knew U.S. history very well and had biblical values to undergird them to not compromise. They actually had hope knowing what Christ had for them in store in the future. That's what kept them from compromising. And I thought, you know what? That's a pretty good application for us. People who don't know not only U.S. history or biblical history are doomed to repeat it, right? They don't, right now, our young people don't know history. They don't know the, the, the problems of communism, right? They're taking full advantage of that. And then our young people hadn't grown up in a system of values of Christianity and what's happening to them. They're being taken advantage of. So what are you and I to do so we don't compromise? Make sure you know your history, biblically and American history, world history. And make sure you have your biblical values all straightened out. Those things will be what carries you through to stand on the rock of Christ in the midst of someone dangling a carrot out in front of you and saying, just compromise just a little bit. You stand on the rock of Christ and you won't ever compromise. Let's pray. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.